1: This is New Books in Science Fiction, part of the New Books network, and I'm Rob Wolf with the Misanthropic Bot edition. Today I'm talking to Martha Wells, the creator of everybody's favorite people-averse, soap-opera-loving, snark-spewing, and highly efficient killing machine known as Murderbot. The first book in Wells's Murderbot Diaries, All Systems Red, earned lots of honors this year, including Nebula and Locus Awards. It also made the shortlist for the Philip K. Dick and Hugo Awards. And frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if the second book and the third book's Artificial Condition, which came out in May, and Rogue Protocol, out next week on August 7th, also garner lots of awards. Martha Wells is also the author of many fantasy novels, including the Books of the Raxora series and the Il Rien series, as well as young adult fantasy novels, short stories, media tie-ins, and nonfiction. Martha, I'm so happy to have you on the pod.
0: Well, thank you for having me.
1: Murderbot is definitely one of the more unique voices in literature. For those listeners who know nothing about it, How would you describe Murderbot, and why or how did you come to center a series of novellas around its adventures?
0: Well, uh, Murderbot is a sec unit, which is a um, half-human, half-machine construct, and they're basically used as labor. Um, They're under the control of a a hub system that, uh, that uses a governor module to control them, and They're used as security and for uh, human expeditions. And Murderbot has managed to hack its governor module. And what people think would happen in that case is that the SEC units would go wild and kill all the humans because who would not in that situation. And what Murderbot has done instead is figured out how to download entertainment media from the company satellites. And basically, it watches entertainment media. And in the story, it's guarding a, a group of scientists that it starts to kind of reluctantly like. And it finds out it's going to have to reveal that it's actually a free agent in order to save them. And I don't actually remember how I got the idea for the character. I was working on The End of the Harbors of the Sun, which was the last book in the books of the Raxura* series. And I got the idea for a character who was a, a controlled security person. Person who was basically a slave under under control of these humans, who had managed to free itself and did still want to do its job to rescue the people that it was with because it did it had affection for them, and originally it was a short story with a really sad ending. But I wrote the I just kind of wrote the idea down so I'd remember it and found and then suddenly found I'd written like you know, like five pages, and uh, I just knew it had to be first person. I was really engaged by the voice. And the first section I wrote was actually the bit with Dr. Mansaw when it's in the cubicle and they're talking. And as I started working on the story, uh, I just realized it couldn't be a short story. It was going to have to be longer. And um, I really uh, didn't want to have a depressing ending, but I debated a lot about what the ending was going to be. And then when the when Tor bought the first one, they wanted the second one, and that kind of led to the rest of Murderbot's adventures.
1: And do you want to remind people, or for people who haven't read all systems, read uh, the story in which Doctor Mensa is introduced? Uh, what that conversation was like? What were they? What were they talking about? Murderbot and Doctor Mensa?
0: Yeah, the scientists in the story come from a non corporate world where bots are considered sentient beings, and they've been forced to have a sec unit. On this contract, and they really don't like the idea. As one of them later points out, it is slavery. And Murderbot has kind of, up to this point, kept itself very much to itself and managed not to interact with them very much, except for security issues. And during the course of the rescue, um, it has to show one of the scientists its face. And Dr. Mensah is the leader of the expedition, and she comes into the the cubicle where Murderbot's uh, getting repaired. To ask it if it's okay and, and check in with it, and Murderbot's not used to being interacted with on that that much as a being treated like an actual member of the expedition instead of just basically a tool. So that conversation kind of uh, really starts their relationship.
1: And Murderbot has a human face, so Murderbot is has human uh, parts of its. Being and body are human, yeah, and the people on the team hadn't realized it had a human face because it prefers not to interact with humans and so kept its face shield opaque
0: been in complete armor up to this point, and they've and it's interacted with them a little bit, but it's it's basically pretended to be a robot as opposed to an actual
1: uh, a sentient being so murderbot is incredibly appealing. And I think one of the reasons it's so appealing is it is full of contradictions. Even its name, Murderbot, suggests that it is this horrifying killing machine, which it certainly can be. You show that it is very efficient at killing when it needs to protect its clients. But as it says on the very first page of the very first book, as a heartless killing machine, I was a terrible failure. Yes. So what's that about?
0: Well, one of the inspirations for the story was I'd seen some stuff a while back when Lord of the Rings first came out, and they were working on the software to uh, make the giant battle scenes because basically that's a kind of an AI algorithm that controls the movements of all these little figures because it would take a person you know it would take peop so many, too many people to program all that in and one of the problems they had was that when they would start the battle scene all the little figures it would have all the little figures run toward each other to fight and then they they break off and run away because it had given them too much survival instinct and they had to basically change the program to tell it not to give the uh, the little the, the little orcs and elves and warriors their um too much survival instinct because it just wouldn't it would decide that no fighting was was not a good idea and they'd all run away
1: i didn't know that that's fascinating
0: yeah, um, I, it's on the documentaries for the Lord, for the for the DVD sets, Lord of the Rings DVDs. I'm sure I'm, I'm explaining it a little bit badly. I'm sure they have they, their explanation was a lot more technical, but it was just interesting that when given the choice, the uh, the program decided that fighting was a bad idea for all these all these little you know hundreds and hundreds of figures that the fighting was a bad idea, and that was one of the inspirations. And also, there was a movie in the '80s, I believe, War Games where basically it's about a computer that becomes sentient, and it's a nuclear, you know, one of the supercomputers that's supposed to control the nuclear armaments. And when given the, the choice between starting a nuclear war and not doing it, it chooses to not do it and wants to play games instead. And there's a great sequence where it it plays out all the possible scenarios of how a nuclear war would go and sees that there is absolutely, it's, it's a no-win situation and decides against it. And it was just me thinking about how a machine intelligence is not a human intelligence. And a lot of the, uh, not all, but a lot of the stories you see are about machine intelligence is wanting to be human. What about one who didn't want to be human and didn't have the same motivations as a human would in these situations? And that's what I've been kind of exploring in the stories. That's kind of why Murderbot doesn't always react the way people are, think it's going to.
1: Murderbot gives you a great perspective on human behavior. He, excuse me, I know it's an, he's an it. I shouldn't say he because he thinks of himself as an it. Uh, Murderbot is constantly trying to help its clients by giving it advice it knows to be sound. And the clients who are humans are usually going, no, I think it's better <laughs> if we go down that dark tunnel where there could be a lot of danger, but I'm sure it's going to be fine. I mean, that's my oversimplification. It's a little more opaque than that. But Murderbot is inevitably right and is constantly having to go, oh, my, these humans, I have to take care of them because they really don't know what they're doing.
0: Well, part of that is its ability; it's taking in a lot of uh, information that they aren't, and especially in the second book, when they, the people that it's it's treating as clients, don't actually know that what it is.
1: Right, they think it's an augmented human with augmented technology, but is basically human. They don't realize that it is actually a robot with a little bit of human thrown in. Right. Another thing Murderbot does which is a fascinating option for something with the kind of technology it has, is that when it feels uncomfortable in a human situation, it will tap into the security cameras around it so it can actually watch itself rather than have to look at the person it's talking to. It can sort of take in the whole situation as a third-person observer, which seems like a wonderful way to get some distance on the scene that you're in. I'm sure a lot of human beings wish they could do that too.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's kind of a way of almost pretending it's not there. It's kind of removing its physical self from the situation that it can watch everyone. And it's used to working with a system where it's part of a security system. So it's getting all these inputs from all these cameras and all these other devices and drones and everything. So that's, that's how it's used to interacting with the world. And when it, you know, it's, Pretending to be human is pretty exhausting for uh, being like this. So then it will fall back on that to kind of get some distance and get some some relief, basically.
1: Was it difficult for you to write these scenes where Murderbot is processing information so differently than a human mind would? I mean, Murderbot is conversing with a human, looking through security cameras, down on the scene with a third person perspective, perhaps communicating with another AI, doing that simultaneously. And you're communicating that through your writing in a way that sort of simulates, I think, Murderbot's experience. But its I can imagine that that's quite a challenge to do that efficiently for you to think that way and for you to present the story in a way that keeps it moving while conveying to us the complexity of Murderbot's thinking and, and data input?
0: Yeah, it is really difficult. That's one reason it the first story came to me pretty quickly. The others I've had to basically write, you know, 10,000, to 20,000 words and then go take most of it out and start over again just because of having to really think about that POV and what information it would have access to and what else it would be doing. And so there's a lot of revision as I go along. Um, and actually in the third story, it was funny because at one point there's so much going on, I was getting overwhelmed, so I had Murderbot start to be a little bit overwhelmed. So um, put a little bit of my own reactions in there. But uh, yeah, it just it just takes a lot of thought and a lot of work and, and a lot of rewriting to try to make sure I get that I try to convey that experience the way I imagine it happening.
1: I think another thing that makes Murderbot so compelling is that it is curious about itself. And I guess a lot of artificial intelligences, fictional ones, are also kind of curious. But Murderbot really has some challenges. I mean, psychologically speaking, things that it doesn't know about itself. And a major plot point is that it has been implicated in the slaughter of a bunch of innocent people or it thinks it has it's not sure if it actually did it if it did do it it doesn't know why it did it and it's trying to figure that out and then on a smaller interactional scale that sometimes you know people will ask it to do things and it will feel like i don't want to do it but it says yes anyway and it's sort of mystified sometimes you know i mean it'll say ironically to the reader yeah i don't know why i said that
0: yeah it goes into uh, one of the one of the things I'm working on with the in the series now. It talks about its impulse control, that basically having your every action controlled for so much of your existence doesn't do great things for your impulse control. Its decision-making process is probably not the best at this point.
1: Is it a bit like an adolescent coming of age?
0: It is a bit like an adolescent that's still kind of, exploring what it can do and what it wants to do and it really doesn't know what it wants to do yet that's kind of part of what it works out over the course of these stories It's trying to figure out does it have a place in the world it doesn't have a place in this in the corporate sector where basically it's considered property you know it's considered a rogue and it would be destroyed on site or taken back to the company if it was caught so it doesn't really have a place there and it's like does it have a place anywhere else and it's been offered a place by dr mensah but it's not sure if it wants that because it does seem like it would just be going back to a human owner except somebody nice this time so it's 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 debating a lot of things internally about just the nature of its existence what its future might be what it wants to do what it really wants to do is sit around and watch entertainment media but it knows it can't do that for the rest of its of its life whatever that is so yeah it's kind of in a way it's kind of like i think a lot of people do when they're growing up it's like what do they want to do what do they want to be you don't really know yet you kind of have to go out and experience life a little bit so it's sort of going through the same thing but as a machine intelligence
1: so i wonder if being a helicopter parent is the equivalent of having a governor module like Murderbot had and had to disable in order to achieve its own autonomy,
0: I don't know if it would be that bad because basically, you know, your parent has your helicopter parent has your best interests at heart in a lot of ways, even if it's annoying to you. And well, the way the governor modules work, that's not you know, this person, the you're not being controlled for your own best interest. You're being controlled just to just to get what they can out of you.
1: Right. That makes sense. Right. And in the end, it would force you to give up your existence on behalf of some client, which I get the feeling almost Murderbot would be willing to do on its own. But it's different if you do it autonomously rather than being required or forced to do it by a governor module.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think it would like to work. One of the things it realizes is that it it does like to actually work security. It does like to solve these problems. It does like to protect people and and things and and make things go right. But um, it doesn't have a chance in the corporate world that it lives in to do that voluntarily.
1: And do you feel, as Murderbot is working out these issues and trying to know more about itself and what it really feels and wants to do, do you feel Murderbot has changed over the course of the three novellas and ultimately the four novellas that you plan to write or plan to issue. I know the last one, the third one's coming out in August and the last one or the fourth one is coming out in October.
0: Yes, I think it, I, I think it does definitely change. I think you can see the course of that. I think it, it develops new abilities. It is, it talks about it opens new processing space, having to handle so many things, so many inputs at once. And it does figure out some more things. So it doesn't, it doesn't find all the answers it's looking for, but it does find some of them.
1: Did you have fun exploring all the different kinds of artificial intelligence? Because it's not just Murderbot that you, you get to write about. In Rogue Protocol, for instance, the third book, you've got everything from, let's see, there's monster military robots that are really scary and ruthless. And then there's also this sweet, nice robot Mickey who's almost like a a pet robot or at least that's what Murderbot thinks when he first meets Mickey is sort of derogatory about Mickey who is basically like let's be friends yes. <laughs> and there are also the operating systems for the interstellar transports who have their own personalities the one probably the most richly drawn and the one most capable is the one from the second book who is called Art, which Murderbot, which I guess is an acronym, and I don't even remember what it originally was for, but Murderbot initially decides that Art stands for Asshole Research Transport.
0: Yeah, that's that's Murderbot came up with the acronym. It it named it, 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 it. Art actually has a ship name and everything that you're gonna find out later um, as I continue the series. But it's because it does come back. But um, yeah, Murderbot was the one who named it. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. When I first started the first novella, I didn't, I was just exploring this tiny little corner of the world. So it's been really fun to expand it and to kind of build on it there and kind of extrapolate whatever else would be out there. And so I've had fun coming up with the different intelligences that Murderbot runs into and, and what they would each be like. And yeah, it's just been, it's just been a lot of fun. I have really enjoyed writing this series.
1: Well, I like to think that science fiction, and people say it does, and I guess history has shown that it does sometimes invent or discover or stumble upon new things, you know, invents new technology. And I wonder, in your exploration of artificial intelligence, which I think is some of what you're doing here, because there's so many different ways it's represented in the book, I wonder if you have discovered things for yourself that may or may not, you know, you can't say if it'll ever be real, but... I think, in some ways, some of the artificial intelligences maybe behave a little differently. I mean, Murderbot certainly seems to, to me, behave differently than almost any other artificial intelligence you know I've run across in fiction. I mean, certainly the the monster military robots are are more of what maybe. A reader or a viewer might expect from a science fiction robot, and Murderbot is something quite different. So, this is my very long-winded way of of asking you what you might have discovered about artificial intelligence that maybe, maybe we'll find out will become reality in the future.
0: I don't know if I've been, I've discovered anything about that because you know I know the characterization I'm doing is not necessarily very realistic. I one thing I have discovered in it is I was I I've been writing about I have some problems with anxiety and OCD and I've kind of put those into the character and I've been also been exploring a little bit about that in this character and um, one of the interesting things that's happened is had people who also have bad anxiety and have other other issues say that they saw themselves in this character and that was kind of kind of really heartwarming for me because these are aspects of my personality that I put into this character. So it was really, it was really neat that that a lot of readers found uh, common ground with that.
1: Well, maybe there is some truth to the notion of an intelligence, whether it be human or artificial in some way, maybe these kinds of psychological challenges or other manifestations that we humans have maybe will end up being manifest in artificial intelligences as well
0: i i wouldn't be totally surprised or it'll be something like that we can't really imagine yet until it actually happens because when you're looking at this creative intelligence you don't know what kind of problems it's going to have you don't know what kind of issues you're going to basically give it by the way it's used one one interesting short story I, I really enjoyed this year was Fandom for Robots. It was a it was on the Nebula War ballot, and now it's on the Hugo ballot. That's a really interesting short story, and it's really about a a robot, a, a sentient robot that's basically been God, what's the word, decommissioned. You know, it's it's out of date now, and it's been put in a museum, and it finds fandom on the internet for a TV show about a, a sentient robot, basically with a human companion going off and having adventures. And it's a really interesting story. And just the idea of like, what if you create a sentient um, machine intelligence and then what do you, in it's out of date, what do you do with it? Do you erase it? Does it sit in a museum with nothing to do? You know, what, what happens, what does its retirement look like? So it's interesting that it, it's also, it's a very funny and very heartwarming story, but it also, kind of brought up that point is you know you if you create a sentient you're responsible for it you know it's not like creating a tool that you can throw away so yeah there's just so many issues that I, I don't even think we've touched on all of them yet I'm sure there's there's a lot more to come the, the more the science advances with this
1: I think one thing that feels very true I don't know if it'll turn out to be true is that is that just as humans are fascinated by fictional stories and television shows and streaming media, Murderbot is fascinated by it. It has its favorite soap opera, The Rise and Fall of Sanctuary Moon, which it streams for hours and hours and thousands of hours. And it seems like all the other artificial intelligences it shares it with are also just as fascinated. And they have very strong feelings about how the robots in the show are presented but i guess my point is it makes perfect sense you have a creative mind it's often sitting around not doing anything and it wants to hear a good story
0: yeah and it's also uh it's also learning context for its own emotions these entertainment media it's it's a way to interact with humans in a completely safe environment where the where it's watching these interactions but the humans can't see it or touch it or anything uh, or tell it what to do or hurt it. Uh, So it can kind of, it can experience human interaction that way. And it can uh, uh, learn and see, uh, identify its own feelings in the characters on the screen.
1: Let's talk for a moment about the format. Each book is novella length. So that's a hundred and something pages long. Why did you decide to tell the story as a series of novellas and not a single book?
0: Well, originally, um, it was only going to be a novella. I didn't realize it was going to be a series until after it was finished, and the editor wanted the second one. And I just used the same format. And it just kind of lent itself well to the series of short adventures. When you put all four novellas together, I think you do have a complete book. But the next, actually, the next... Uh, entry in the series is going to be a full-length novel, which is telling a, a somewhat a story with broader scope of um, of Murderbot's adventures. It's hopefully going to expand the universe a little bit too.
1: And so, have you written that yet, or is that something you're working on now?
0: Uh, Tor just announced it. I guess it was a few weeks ago, but I've I've been working on it. Yeah, but I, it probably won't be out until I, I I can't even speculate. I it's not it's not anywhere near done. Let's <laughs> say like that. I'm hoping to finish it by early next year.
1: And can you give a sense of what your writing technique is like or schedule? I mean, do you write every day? Do you write all day?
0: I try to write every day. Um, I usually try to do at least a thousand words and, and a little bit more. And yeah, I write. I write. I spend most of the day writing. It just kind of depends. Sometimes it goes really quickly and, and uh, I get to my goal pretty fast. Uh, sometimes it ta- it does take all day. <laughs>
1: And do you stop when you reach your goal, or do you just keep on going?
0: Usually, uh, it sometimes I'll get you know a, a, a huge amount done, but if I do, I find the next day I have I don't get very much done at all. So it's kind of better if I kind of portion it out. And then, of course, there's always exceptions. Sometimes when you're near the end of something and you really know where you're going with it, I can get a lot more done. But most of the time, I don't do a lot of plotting in advance, so I'm. I'm kind of going by the seat of my pants and kind of doing, uh, working out the plot as I go along. So it does make me, I I do write a bit slower than probably a lot of people who have everything planned out in advance.
1: I find that never works very well when, I mean, there is some advantage to having things worked out in advance, but then they never really work out exactly as you plan. So you end up having to finagle, at least that's my experience. I suppose everyone's different though.
0: Yeah, I think everybody's different, but I do feel that, I mean, I can, I've done outlines before and I have a big problem outlining action scenes because things I think will work in the outline and then I try to write them do not, absolutely do not work. <laughs> and it's really only when I'm actually trying to write the scene, if I can, that I can figure out, will things work? Is that characterization right? Are these logistics right? It really, it, it, it's really not something I, I can figure out until I'm actually trying to write the scene. So if, when I, if I do do outlines, they're very broad and I don't go into much detail at all.
1: Well, I could talk about Murderbot forever, but I did want to <laughs> ask you about something else, which was the speech you gave at the 2017 World Fantasy Awards called Unbury the Future. And you end up talking about all these accomplished people who contributed to film, to writing, to short stories, who we don't know about because they were women, or they were part of the LGBTQ community, or they were black. And every single person you name, I had never heard of. Unfortunately, I read it online, and so there was a link to to everything. And I just found it absolutely fascinating that there were, for instance, 50% of movies between 1911 and 1928 were written by women to quote your piece.
0: Yeah, I had I'd read the book. I mentioned about the movies. It's um, Carrie Beauchamp, I believe. And it's without lying down about um, uh, the women in uh, early, very early Hollywood. And when I was growing up, I'd been told that Ida Lupino was the first woman director. And when you read the book, it's like she's not even, you know, the hundred or first. There were so many, and, you know, there were women producers and directors and writers and so I'd read that uh, several years ago, and then Hidden Figures had come out, and I'd read that book. And it's the same, again, where there were all these African-American women and men also who um, worked in uh, engineering and computing for uh, early NASA at the just at the dawn of the space program. And there wasn't any attempt to hide them. It was just that people just kind of – they retired. They didn't need the computing division anymore. They were scattered all through the program. And – and it's just that somehow there was this perception that this, you know, it, it, it was forgotten. It never, it was like it never happened. And also I'd had some friends talk about who are librarians, uh, we're talking about the research on weird tales and how many people, cause I think we can all, you know, you grow up knowing that CL Moore was an early woman fantasy writer who wrote for weird tales and other magazines and, um, there was this perception that she was the only one. And I've seen people sit there and state to me, the writer, other writers that yes, she was the only one. And there were no women at that time period involved. And it's like, you look at the the weird tales magazines and there's so many writers with women with female names. There's uh, women with female names, or I mean, writers with female names in the, uh, in the letter column. So obviously they're, you know, they're a, a, a part of the readership and the, I can't remember the name of the book right now, but the the basically working out the percentages of the percentage of women writers over the course of the magazine, the percentage of what well, probably were women readers, women poets, and they had a woman editor, you know, and it was just, where did we, where did this information, why did this information just fall out of the collective public consciousness about science fiction? How did we forget this? And just the, the kind of things you encounter now where, um, so many people have already forgotten the women writers in the 70s and the women writers in the 80s and and saying that, you know, women just don't write epic fantasy and things like that. And, and, and it's just frightening to think that, you know, we're supposed to with the you would think with the Internet and the information we have available now that you couldn't disappear a large group of people like that. But it's happened so many times before. Will it keep happening? And that's kind of what I was writing about. And it's just—it's—it's it's sort of a, like a, a slow build of anger and annoyance that these things happened. And it's so often so hard to convince people that, that history and reality is different from what they perceive it to be.
1: And what can we do to keep the truth in the forefront? And that's a question I think that applies to all today anyway with, you know, people talking about alternative facts and fake news. But, you know... How do we hold on to these important stories and these diverse perspectives? I mean, I would think now, I would like to think, oh, they're not going anywhere. Everyone knows that there are women writers contributing to fantasy and science fiction and to all fields. And, of course, there's still fields where they are underrepresented and where different groups are underrepresented. But we're moving in the right direction but but are we, and, and will this be sustained? And, and it's an interesting question. Will we remember in the future?
0: Yeah, it's very frightening because then you kind of realize that progress isn't something that's permanent, that you have to work for it all the time. And it's so, if you relax, it's so easy for something to take it away from you, and you can be back where you used to be.
1: Well, let's hope that doesn't happen, and... Let's hope that Murderbot progresses to a happy future. Yeah. I guess it's time to wrap it up. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Martha.
0: Oh, I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me.
1: I've been talking with Martha Wells about the Murderbot Diaries. The third installment, Rogue Protocol, is coming out next week on August 7th from Tor. An exit strategy, which is the final installment in the novella series so that's the final installment for now but as martha said she's going to have a a a novel hopefully coming out next year with more murder bot adventures but exit strategy is coming out in october so keep an eye out for it please subscribe to new books in science fiction so you can hear interviews like this one of your favorite science fiction authors Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief of The New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. And please consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, and I thank you very much for listening.